We criminalize low-level, often harmless or minor conduct. We sweep in millions of people in ways that have flown beneath the radar. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Misdemeanors uh, seem like the poor stepchild of the criminal justice system. There are no uh, police procedural TV shows focused on them. Uh, There's no innocence projects for the wrongfully convicted. Uh, And there's not even much attention from uh, legal scholars and criminal justice reformers. Yet misdemeanors make up 80% of criminal cases across the country, and they are the primary way that most Americans experience the justice system. And our guest today says that system, that misdemeanor system, is failing badly in some truly troubling and consequential ways. Alexandra Natapoff is a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal, and it's published uh, by Basic Books. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So you talk a fair bit about, or I guess lament a fair bit in your book about the felony centric view that uh, the reform community tends to take and the scholarly community tends to take, and so focusing on the more serious crimes. But you have chosen to focus on what I've called this poor stepchild uh, of the criminal justice system, misdemeanors. What, is there something in your biography, or, or what, what, what led you to this particular focus? I've always been surprised at how little attention we pay to misdemeanors, to the low-level criminal system, uh, precisely because it makes up so much of what our criminal process does. And as I got deeper into the question, as I researched issues around misdemeanor processing, as I started to gather data about misdemeanor systems across the country, I became persuaded that we can't really understand American criminal justice without profoundly engaging in how we run the petty offense process. It fuels much of the racial skew of our criminal system, the wealth based and class-based skew against the poor of our criminal system, all of which we have come to understand as part of the uh, harshness and and wrongfulness of mass incarceration. But it starts at the bottom. It starts with misdemeanors at the the bottom of that criminal justice pyramid with these low-level petty cases that we, we just haven't really paid enough attention to. So let's start maybe with defining some terms, um, these low-level petty offenses. What exactly are they? I mean, obviously, misdemeanors, it's a very broad and flexible term, and that's part, I think, of the focus of your book and why you talk about people being trapped by this sort of capacious um, system. But uh, what are the most sort of representative uh, misdemeanors out there? So you're right. Misdemeanors is an enormously broad term. It covers all kinds of offenses from, you know, the most minor loitering and jaywalking all the way up to relatively serious offenses like domestic violence or DUI. Every jurisdiction defines it a little bit differently. All over the country, a misdemeanor, uh, the standard definition is a crime for which you can serve no more than one year in jail. Uh, There are conversely what we call non-jailable misdemeanors, still a criminal offense, but you can't go to jail for it, at least least not up front, not right away. So, So it is an enormous category. The way I think about it is not so much as a, a techie term defining any particular one crime, but as an aspect of our criminal system, that we criminalize low-level, often harmless or minor conduct, 
on the scale of millions of cases and millions of people in low-level courts in ways that we do not scrutinize or lavish resources on. We sweep in millions of people in ways that have flown beneath the radar. And so the term misdemeanor kind of captures all the conduct and offenses and processes through which we operate this low-level process in ways that, frankly, uh, you know, really contradict uh, many of our principles of criminal justice. Right. And the term is so broad, I mean, or its use is so broad. I, I was struck by this category of loitering, which is a misdemeanor, meaning what exactly? Meaning, you know, milling around with no clear purpose. I mean, what are the consequences of, of uh, that kind of thinking, that kind of lens that the criminal justice system is viewing behavior by? So the misdemeanor process is, is a way that we turn normal, everyday behavior, maybe disruptive behavior or unpleasant behavior or behavior that we wish people wouldn't engage in, into a crime. And we've grappled with that legally. So there are Supreme Court cases that have held, uh, have imposed limits uh, on the extent to which the state can make very vague conduct a crime. So vagrancy is the famous one. For hundreds of years, people were convicted of the misdemeanor of vagrancy, which really just meant not having a job or not being able to account for yourself. Uh, loitering is sort of the kissing cousin of vagrancy. Very vague loitering statutes have been held unconstitutional, but, but most cities have some form of loitering statute standing around uh, for an illegal purpose, standing around uh, in ways that impede vehicular or pedestrian traffic. Uh, these are minor kinds of conduct that we turn into crimes not because we're afraid of the conduct but because really because we want to give police the tools to interfere with the people who are engaged in this kind of conduct. And so we can understand them as a form of social control, really a, a conferring of power on the state to say, look, we're not worried that you're standing in the way of traffic. We're worried about the class of people who might do those kinds of things and we're going to empower police to interfere with their liberty. And then you talk, you refer to the misdemeanor system as a sprawling um, system. And properly speaking, it doesn't even, it shouldn't even get a singular noun, right? There is no one singular system out there. It's a very hard thing to actually talk about. So could you maybe explain the nature of this sprawling aspect, this uh, sort of archipelago of, you know, misdemeanor institutions? And then I just imagine that must have been a difficult, something difficult for you to, to analyze and, and, and to write about. In the title of the book, in the subtitle of the book, I say the misdemeanor system, and that's a metaphor. <laughs> there is no one misdemeanor system. In this country, there are, there are thousands of pieces of the misdemeanor phenomenon, thousands of prosecutor offices, police departments, low-level courts, public defender offices, uh, jails, sheriff's departments. All of these come together to form the... Pick your metaphor, system, leviathan, behemoth. Quiet behemoth, I think you call it. <laughs> Quiet. Yeah, uh, it's getting louder. <laughs> um, and part of the reason it's hard to pick a good word uh, is because it is such an enormous system. It's, it's hard to pin down. It varies wildly from place to place, from state to state. But I think it's important to conceptualize it as a whole in the same way that we conceptualize, for example, the American education system as a whole, not because it's consistent or even one system. It's, it's as diverse and sprawling as our criminal system. But education 
as an institution, as a public policy, we understand that writ broad, it profoundly affects our democracy. And misdemeanors are like that. The way we permit our states, our counties, our cities to create and prosecute and process misdemeanors is every bit as important uh, as the way we handle issues like education or public housing or public health. Yeah, I mean, along with your book, having a, a pretty powerful narrative that's carrying it forward and taking apart the process and showing the continuities back to the Middle Ages, uh, for example, as you were saying, with vagrancy laws. It's also a very numbers-driven book, and it really seems like you had to do this Herculean amount of labor to assemble the data on what's actually going on out there. So could, could you talk a little bit about what the challenges are of finding out what is actually going on? And is, is that difficulty by design or just simply the fact that the system is growing up in this very sort of pell-mell fashion? So it was very difficult to get a strong empirical picture of the misdemeanor system nationally in part because it is so sprawling and it is so diverse and it's comprised of so many individual small individualized institutions. There's no central authority that counts misdemeanors in this country. There's no central authority to regulate it. Our criminal system is a profoundly local phenomenon. I took my best shot at it. I sent a records request to every state office. They're called the administrative office of the court. Every state has one. Its job is to basically keep track of what its criminal system is doing. And I asked every office, how many misdemeanors do you file? every year in your state. I, I actually asked them for one year, for 2015. How many misdemeanors did you file in 2015? And, and no one had done that before? As far as I know, no one had reached out to every state in this way to ask. Every state produces an annual report, so I gathered information from every report. And then I, I looked for everything I could find, every ACLU report, every public defender uh, annual report, every, every place I thought I might get a better sense of how many cases there are and what kind of cases are making up these dockets. With that, uh, on the basis of that enormous pile of information that I collected, I concluded that approximately 13 million misdemeanor cases were filed in 2015 uh, in the United States. But to be absolutely clear, my, the picture that I obtained was partial. I, I couldn't get information from every state or the kinds of information that I wanted, So, but, but not for want of trying. As you, as you point out, a lot of that data is just not out there yet. You say that an important myth that this system is constructed on, and I guess the way it achieves what public legitimacy it has, is this idea that the crimes are minor and then the sanctions are minor too, right? This is the story that we tell ourselves about the system. Um, so it's not worth getting that exercised about. But in fact, it's at the heart of the book that you show that the consequences of a misdemeanor conviction and, and even just the process itself, even if you're not actually found guilty in the end, that those consequences can actually de derail a person's life, uh, that the consequences are anything but petty. And that, I think, is a real contribution from your book that people don't haven't really appreciated hitherto. So do you, you want to talk a little bit about what are some of these really shattering consequences that people experience? I think it's one of the great myths of the misdemeanor system that encountering the process or getting, uh, getting a misdemeanor conviction is, is not that big a deal. It's a myth that validates a lot of the sloppiness of the system. It's one of the reasons we accord less due process. 
in misdemeanor courts. It's one of the reasons we don't give every misdemeanor to a lawyer. It's one of the reasons uh, that we expend fewer resources because we perpetuate this myth in effect that it's not such a big deal to be punished and therefore we're going to make it easier to sweep you into the system and convict you in the first place. Yeah, and it's just wrong. Uh, The impact of a misdemeanor conviction extend all the way from, you know, so the the most obvious, and I think think we're paying more attention to the burden and the stigma of of a criminal record. Those criminal records are permanent. They, They dog people for their entire lives. Employers tell us that they routinely check people's criminal backgrounds, even for misdemeanors when deciding whether to make them a job offer. Landlords look at criminal records, including misdemeanors. A misdemeanor conviction can affect your credit. It can affect your eligibility for professional licenses. It can affect your ability to get a loan uh, or financial aid. Of course, it can affect uh, and does affect your immigration status. Some misdemeanors are deportable. So there's a vast array of personal, long-term economic and social consequences that go, even with a very minor conviction that I don't think has been fully appreciated. I think one of the reasons, frankly, is that we've been grappling with mass incarceration for so long, those extraordinarily harsh, multi-decade sentences, solitary confinement, the death penalty. Our felony system is so harsh that it does make misdemeanor punishments seem minor in comparison. And I want to suggest it's the wrong comparison. We shouldn't be comparing misdemeanor punishments to 30-year federal drug sentences. We should be appreciating the real lived burdens and experiences that actual people and families encounter when they or someone that they love gets a misdemeanor conviction. And that is the appropriate metric. From that perspective, they're really quite punitive. So when you talk about the way that people are are swept into the system, a central contention of your book is that the system has evolved in such a way as to pretty efficiently, if that's the word, kind of um, narrow people, ring people into situations where they are um, pleading guilty, where they are um, forced to plead guilty, often to um, a, a crime that we don't think that they actually committed. So in the American criminal system, 95% of all convictions, all felony and misdemeanor, are the result of a plea, not of a trial. We almost never go to trial in this country anymore. Those pleas are the result of uh, a complicated process which can be very different at the felony level than it is at the misdemeanor level. So a serious felony plea, for example, in federal court or to a very, you know, to a very serious crime could be the result of months of investigation and litigation and negotiation. That plea might take place in the shadow of a rigorous evaluation of the evidence and of the applicable law. That almost never happens in the misdemeanor context. So so the fact that we have high plea rates in misdemeanors means something different, or at least can mean something very different than the fact that we have high plea rates for very serious felonies. We know, for example, and this is why bail is so important for misdemeanors, we know that people facing bail amounts that they can't pay often plead guilty to low-level offenses just in order to go home. And if we think about that calculus for a moment, the idea that it, that it would be rational for an individual to say, I'll take the misdemeanor conviction because it's more important that I not lose my job. People don't take 
a murder conviction in order to get out of jail just to go home. Because the offenses are petty, because people perceive them to be petty, the incentives look different. And so people are more willing to take deals that they wouldn't necessarily take if they understood the offenses to be more serious as they do when we label those offenses a felony. And if they understood how serious the consequences are of pleading guilty to even a petty offense. I think that if people better understood the full consequences of pleading to a petty offense, then the calculus would look very different. They might resist pleading guilty even if they couldn't make bail. They might resist pleading guilty even if the process takes very long. So ironically, the misdemeanor system is both very, very fast and very, very slow. It's very, very fast if you're willing to plead guilty and often very, very slow if you want rigorous representation, if you want to go to trial, if you want to file motions. Right. The system punishes you for wanting a more rigorous examination, right? You're not given the reward of a speedy exit from the system. The, the system makes it very expensive and difficult to exercise your rights to examine the evidence to litigate, for example, whether the uh, police behaved legally in your case. And so all the incentives point towards an pleading guilty as quickly as possible. And it's a rare defendant who has the resources and the time and the money or the information or in our overwhelmed public defense system, the legal representation resources to resist that significant pressure. All right. So then how how serious do you think it must be a hard thing to get a, a handle on? How serious do you think is the innocence problem in the, in the mis- misdemeanor justice system of people pleading to things they didn't actually do? I think the innocence problem is enormous and underappreciated. Uh, I devote a chapter in the book uh, to it because I think that we just haven't grappled with what is probably the scale of wrongful convictions in the misdemeanor system and – wrongful convictions that that land on the most vulnerable. People of color in highly policed neighborhoods who are likely to be wrongfully arrested for crimes like loitering, trespassing, disorderly conduct, which they very well may not have committed, who end up in jail and can't make bail or end up uh, being pressured by the system to take a plea and take it. Those are wrongful convictions. Those are wrongful convictions because of the scale of the misdemeanor system that probably happen thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of times every year, a vast wrongful conviction docket that we pay almost no attention to in the same way that we have accorded insufficient attention to the misdemeanor phenomenon as a whole. I think it's an exciting moment in this conversation. I know that uh, folks in the Innocence Movement and the Innocence Project are starting to take a look at misdemeanors, at the pressure to plead guilty, at the at the sources of these wrongful convictions like lack of counsel. So we've already talked about race and the misdemeanor justice system because you, you can't have a conversation about the criminal justice system for very long if you're being honest and not talk about race. But can we just delve into it a bit more like that – how you see the misdemeanor justice system as being just a leading engine of racial inequality in this country and how at at every every step of the, the process, uh, police, prosecutors, judges, uh, you have this system that is unfairly targeting and then unfairly convicting people of color, particularly African-Americans and particularly African-American men. So the misdemeanor system, I think, is the great one of the great underappreciated engines of racial inequality in this country. It is the first moment where our massive 
criminal system reaches out uh, and identifies and touches and marks people of color for low-level conduct, for often harmless conduct, marks them as criminal, arrests them, brings them into the system, gives them that first criminal conviction, gives them that first experience of jail, gives them that first understanding that they will disproportionately be targeted by the police. We have come to understand mass incarceration as an engine of racial disparity and racial discrimination. And we need and I think we need to understand that it starts even earlier than that, before anyone ever goes to prison, that it is the misdemeanor net that is the first step of racializing crime in this country. And it's taking place under the radar in these highly discretionary, low-level, chump change arrests and cases that we are paying insufficient attention to. Once we pay attention to the misdemeanor system as an engine of racial disparity, as an engine of, in many ways, racial social control because we use the misdemeanor system to over-police communities of color, poor communities of color, then we can see that the misdemeanor system is not just a criminal system. It's as influential an engine of social inequality and racial inequality as uh, low-quality public schools, as the unavailability of public housing, as our uh, thinning social safety net as residential segregation, it is one of the ways that state policy affirmatively disadvantages people of color. It has not been held to account as a system, as a public policy. It has not been forced to account for those decisions in the, in the enormously influential systemic way that it does. Uh, and, and I think if nothing else, it is the, that is the first thing we need to recognize about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, and it's a story of racial control and, and American history. I mean, you've, we've seen the argument about the continuity of uh, the criminal justice, system, criminal justice system being used in these racist ways more when we talk about mass incarceration. And you really take it into the misdemeanor justice world and show how this low-level but constant form of control goes back to, you know, at least, uh, you know, the backlash against uh, Reconstruction after the Civil War and the, and the 13th Amendment and, and, and a, a way of uh, enslaving people by other means, at which point it becomes a deeply troubling um, story, all of this coming out of the misdemeanor system. It really is an incredible history, again, that, that we, just, we just haven't appreciated. So take the misdemeanor saga all the way back to the end of the Civil War and emancipation. The southern states essentially converted their misdemeanor courts, their misdemeanor processes into a mechanism for re-enslaving African-American labor. Sheriffs, uh, local sheriffs and local magistrates essentially colluded to reach out and round up African-Americans, arresting them for low-level offenses. It's going to sound very familiar for loitering and trespassing. Like clearing and the corners and if, clearing if there the were corner corners. And, and, uh, and gambling and spitting and vagrancy and charging them with these crimes, imposing unpayable fines and fees, which – of course, these these indigent defendants couldn't pay, and then selling them using that putative criminal sentence in effect to sell those individuals to local industry, to farms, to factories, to mines. The industry stepped up as the surety. They essentially paid the bond on those individuals and converted them back into slave labor. Thousands of people died. Um, it was it was 
collusion that lasted all the way, all the way up until uh, World War I, until the federal government took seriously the fact that they really hadn't ended slavery in the southern states through this kind of forced labor. So you've started alluding to this in, in, in your answers. You, we're, we're talking a little bit about the, the influence, the way the influence of money creeps into the system. W- one thing you do, I think, r- really well in your, in your book is, is you follow the money, you know, that, that famous uh, injunction. And when you follow the money and the way that money incentives are coursing through uh, the misdemeanor justice system, when you pull together all the aspects of that, it, it becomes a very disturbing portrait. So I, I, could, could you talk a little bit about what role money is playing in, in the system, maybe first as an incentive for jurisdictions, um, and, and, and what, that, what, what that's doing to the I- ideal of justice? It would be hard to exaggerate the role of money in the misdemeanor system at every stage for every player, every set of incentives. After the Department of Justice issued its Ferguson report, I think the nation was essentially put on notice that there are thousands of cities, thousands of jurisdictions all over the country that are feeding off the revenue stream generated by misdemeanor fines and fees. We are only just starting to grapple with that economic reality. Those incentives affect courts. They affect prosecutor offices. They affect public defender offices, probation offices, sheriffs. There's there's almost no institution that is unaffected by that potential incentive to use those cases and the fines and fees that flow from those cases to, to fund those cash-strapped institutions. It varies from place to place. So some jurisdictions rely more heavily on those fines and fees than others. It's certainly, it is not universal and it is not, uh, it's not smooth. It is profoundly regressive because our criminal system disproportionately goes after the poor, the low income, and the disadvantaged. So, it's, so it is a profoundly vicious cycle. We are starting to understand it better. We are starting to see to see pushback. But I, I think it will take a great investment into rethinking how our lower court system should work to wean those institutions off those revenue sources. Otherwise, if you leave those institutions to their own devices, they are always going to be under pressure to raise money from their own subjects who will always be disadvantaged, who will always be low income. Uh, so we're just inviting that debacle. Right, and there's been a lot of uh, attention to private prisons, you know, which is a small but troubling phenomenon. But there's also a lot of private business interests that are swimming around the misdemeanor justice system and, and uh, also effectively making a fair bit of money off the system. Yeah, privatization in the misdemeanor system, I th- we haven't even fully charted the extent to which it has permeated these low-level courts and these low-level processes in part because we know so little but private probation, um, bail bondsmen, electronic monitoring, uh, debt collectors. So, so the, the payment programs for folks who cannot pay their fines and fees, they're put on a payment plan. Uh, if they don't pay those fines and fees, many courts turn that debt over to private debt collectors who not only collect that debt, but can impose up to 40 percent surcharges on essentially late fees. So there there are all these private players and private industries feeding off that revenue stream in profoundly regressive and dysfunctional ways that we haven't even fully charted. So part of, I think part of the transparency mandate is, as you say, following the money. We, we have to 
start rethinking who should be permitted to make money off the backs of poor people swept into our misdemeanor system. Yeah, and I mean, just to turn to look at those poor people swept into the system, I don't think people fully appreciate just how inverted the the process is. I mean, the, in terms of people receiving the fines and fees and then receiving, being, un, being unable to pay a fine and receiving a fee because they're unable to re- pay the fine and then maybe ending up in jail because of that. Yeah, so bottom line, we impose unpayable fines and fees on poor people who are convicted of low-level crimes, sometimes crimes for which they could not go to jail, non-jailable offenses, even traffic offenses. When they don't pay those fines and fees, fines and fees, we lock them up. And sometimes charge them for the privilege of being locked up as and well. And then we right? charge them for uh, flunking their probation. We charge them for the warrant that we issued to take them to jail. We charge them daily jail fees. Those fines and fees keep accumulating. They don't go away. People can be burdened for years with this criminal justice debt, all stemming from absurdly minor offenses that under no scenario warrant this kind of punitive long-term treatment. So this is why you and and others use this language of a a debtor's prison, which is supposed to be outlawed. You're not supposed to be able to imprison people because they can't pay their debts. It's part of the uh, American revolutionary fabric, actually. Every state has law or constitutional provision that outlaws civil debtor's prison. The idea is if you're poor, your creditors should not be able to manipulate the criminal justice apparatus to lock you up just to extract their money. If you don't pay your credit card debt, the bank can't lock you up. And yet in the misdemeanor system, it's one of the reasons we call it the the phenomenon, the new debtor's prison, is that it's essentially what's happening. People are getting locked up not because of the crime they committed, but because they're too poor to pay a finer fee. So we're a forward-looking place here. Um, But before I turn to sort of end the interview by asking you, you know, what are some of the prescriptions? What are some of the reforms we can make? um, What's already going on out there? I I, I mean, I do want to ask you, do you think is is the system by its own terms that you're describing is is it is it broken or or is it working pretty much as it's intended to work? So we need a criminal justice system. We need a low-level criminal justice system. Nobody wants to live in a community in which people are breaking into their cars or they feel like their bodies or property are not safe from low-level incursions. The question is how do we do that in a way that is just, equitable, racially equitable? And lawful. So I, I'm a criminal law professor. I teach criminal law. One of the things uh, every first year law student is taught is what are, what are the classic purposes of punishment? And we, we you know, go all the way back to Hobbes and Kant and the great philosophers. And the classic purposes of punishment are retribution. You know, people, sometimes people do terrible things in the criminal system and our society needs to respond to it. Rehabilitation, uh, giving people a second chance. Deterrence, teaching everybody don't do it. <laughs> And when all else fails, we incapacitate dangerous people if we, if we just can't figure out how to integrate them back into society. The misdemeanor system has substituted revenue generation, professional perpetuation, bureaucracy for those profoundly important social purposes. We need to get off that boat. Right. And, and, and I mean, there's also just there's a very practical task of, of, of shrinking the system of uh, bringing fewer people into it. Are, are there reforms out there already that you think are, are doing that work of, of shrinking the system, of decreasing the footprint of the system? I think the, the, that shrinking the system 
is is the way to understand reform. Uh, and there are many straightforward, practical ways of doing that, some of which are already happening in many jurisdictions. So decriminalization and legalization are a way of shrinking the misdemeanor system. Uh, of, of course, marijuana is our great ongoing experiment in taking crimes off the book, but decriminalizing traffic offenses, decriminalizing uh, low-level order offenses so that those those kinds of offenses are no longer routing people into a criminal system but into a civil or administrative system or a system of citations or tickets if it's absolutely necessary. So legislatures have a role to play in shrinking the net. Police have a role in ratcheting back on the kinds the, the number and the kinds of arrests that they make so that that pipeline is not filled up in the first place disproportionately with pe- with poor people with people of color for these low level offenses prosecutors can immediately make an impact on shrinking the pipeline through stronger screening and declination processes uh, and then we can shrink the system by punishing people less by putting fewer people in jail by by uh, letting go of, of the terrible debtor's prison model. So this is not pie in the sky. People are doing this. We, we can see them doing it. And it, every jurisdiction has these tools at its disposal. I guess I, I wonder what you think of the model, which informs a lot of the work here, of, of diverting people. Diversion is the term of art um, out of the system. Um, you know, for example, we have a program called Project Reset, that takes people, you know, arrested on a misdemeanor offense and gives them the opportunity to be diverted out of the criminal justice system entirely into some, you know, brief alternative programming. And they never set foot in a courtroom and, uh, and the prosecutor ends up agreeing to decline their, to, to, to decline the case if they complete the program. Is that a, a model that you think is, is an interesting one? I think diversion is a very important piece of the reform puzzle. Obviously, it's incredibly important to give people an opportunity to keep their records clean, uh, to avoid engaging the criminal process, uh, avoid incarceration, obviously avoid avoid the stigma of a criminal record. There are diversion programs, of course, here in New York, but all over the country where I think people are experimenting with and understanding uh, that there are many ways to handle people who engage in low-level conduct that we that we think that they should not engage in other than imposing a criminal record on them. I would just and we all grapple with, with, with this. You know, there's n- nothing, you know, no reform is free. And I think diversion, like decriminalization, runs the risk that sometimes we, you know, we call it a net widener because it ironically makes it easier to sweep people into the system if we treat them less harshly when they get there. So diversion makes it easier, for example, for people to not contest their cases. They feel like, well, if I just have to do a diversion program, then maybe it's not worth going through all that trouble, even if they're innocent. Now they're in a criminal diversion program with the threat of conviction hanging over their head if they fail the diversion program for conduct that maybe they should never have been in the criminal system in for the first place. One of the great upsides of diversion is it saves resources. One of the great threats of diversion is that it saves resources. So it makes it It gives us more resources to bring more people into the system because we're not jailing them immediately, because we're not going through the expense, for example, of representing them or the prosecutorial expense of litigating the cases. So I just think we need to be very careful that as we engage in these very important reforms of diversion and decriminalization um, and alternative mechanisms of, of resolving 
these cases, that we don't accidentally convert the low-level criminal system into an alternative for the welfare state and leave it at that. That people need to commit an offense in order to get needed social services. We're already seeing that. We're seeing that with, uh, we're seeing that with the homeless. We're seeing that with people with mental health disabilities. We're seeing that with people with addiction um, and substance abuse problems, that the criminal system has become the way that we provide service to, services to them. Uh, that's backwards. And we should, not, we, we should not let ourselves be lulled into a sense of complacency because we think that the punitive footprint of that experience is so much less than a, than a conviction that it's okay. Well, um, Alexander, I, I just want to thank you so much for um, for coming in today and 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 for the book, which I just think makes such an important contribution. The the way you you draw all of these sort of previously disparate uh, parts of the misdemeanor justice system uh, together and really give people a sense of the whole. And it's chilling at times, but it's hopeful in the sense when we can talk about ways to reform it. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I've been speaking with Alexandra Natapoff. She is a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and the author of Punishment Without Crime, How Our Massive Misdemeanor System Traps the Innocent and Makes America More Unequal. For more information on this episode and all of our episodes, uh, including some suggestions for further reading, uh, you can visit our website. That's at courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. Technical support today provided by the ruddy Bill Harkins. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. Our director of design is Samiha Mia, and our show's founder is Rob Wolf. Please continue to spread the word about the show if you can. The tweets and the reviews on iTunes really do help. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>